Welcome to the Motherhood Village Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Gonzalez-Cumberbatch, and I know firsthand that it takes a village to raise a child, but most importantly, that it takes a village to uplift a mother. A mother's village is necessary and can take up many forms. Consider this podcast as part of your motherhood village. No matter the season of motherhood you're in, every conversation will give you more tools to add to your parenting toolbox, and you'll feel supported, inspired, and uplifted. So let's get into an informative and empowering conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Motherhood Village podcast. I am on with a very special guest. I have Lynn Greenberg, who is the happiest wife, mom, and grandma. She's a very retired attorney who loves to cook, exercise, and read. And she has seen how positivity with feelings and differences can allow children to go into happy, productive adults. During COVID-19, when many families were living together with an abundance of unscheduled free time, Lynn and her son, Jonathan, who has dyslexia, began to work on the concepts and ideas for their book, Robbie the Dyslexic Taxi. As ideas developed, they became increasingly invested in the character, his story, and the impact this endeavor could have on others. Born with dyslexia, Jonathan Greenberg could not read and write like many other children his age. So instead of giving into frustration, Jonathan used his struggle as a catalyst for creativity. Expressing his ideas through art and having overcome his learning difficulty, Jonathan has fallen in love with reading. That's awesome. Robbie the Dyslexic Taxi and the Airport Adventure exemplify Jonathan's passion for writing and illustration. Together with Lynn, his mother, and his writing partner, they are already thinking of other stories featuring neurodiverse characters that complement this book. Oh, wow. Welcome, Lynn. How are you today? Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm I'm doing well. So great. Uh, it's a chilly morning where I am. So you where know, are you located? I'm in Connecticut, and ah. it's maybe 14 degrees. I don't know. <laughs> wow. And I'm local. in South Florida, and I woke up. It was like 60s overcast, and mm. I was freezing. So yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine 14 degrees. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Let's jump into it. So I always like to ask my guests, what is their favorite book or one that they would like to recommend? And truthfully, it could mean something maybe that had an impact on you. My podcast is a podcast for mothers. Uh, You could say a parenting book or anything, anything that has had a profound impact on you that you'd like to share. Well, when I was trying to learn and understand uh, what dyslexia was, I read a book by Sally Shaywitz, who is a premier, you know, researcher at Yale and on the subject of dyslexia. She was one of the first people to really investigate it. So she has, he's, she's done a lot of work with that. And that was, that was a book that was very meaningful to me. And I still grab it once in a while if I need some refreshers. I'm sure that was impactful. You know, my my little guy's only six, but I try without getting too overwhelmed of really, you know, there's no handbook, but thankfully there's books like that, right, that can help guide us to understand our children a little bit better. Yes, I, I yes. thought it was a great book. So that's awesome. Thank you. Okay. So Robbie, the dyslexic taxi. Talk a little bit about, I know you said COVID-19, you guys are figuring this out, but maybe take it a little further back. So your son had dyslexia, I'm sure must have been 
frustrating for him, frustrating for you, overwhelming, understanding maybe even before the diagnosis, like what was going on. So maybe kind of talk really high level from that point and then how maybe he overcame it to then the inspiration to write a book and why you felt having the children's book was so important to, to begin with. Instead of writing, let's say, from your point of view or more for the parents, why writing a book like this was important. So John is my youngest of four children, and I know everyone has a different learning style, but he just was not learning the way you would sort of think a progression would go. He didn't say the AB, sing the ABC song. He didn't want to watch Sesame Street. Like he didn't, he could tell you over time, like every Thomas the Tank Engine, their name, but he couldn't tell you that Thomas started with the letter T. And I, I just... You know, his teachers, even in nursery school, would say to me, oh, you know, it's a boy and he just, you know, can't sit still and isn't learning and isn't smart. And I knew that wasn't right. And I was trying to understand, not knowing much about dyslexia at all. And I decided to ignore what what I was being told about John. And I did my investigating and I found through a pedi- my pediatrician at the time, someone who would test him when he was six because the school really wanted no part of it. They were dismissing it. So I had him tested. Sure enough, classic dyslexic, super smart, just needed to learn how to read differently than, you know, the normal reader. And so once I we got the diagnosis, then it was still, it was a relief you know, it was a relief for us to have a name and for John, because John had been told, you know, he was stupid and he was less than by, you know, his peers, some of his teachers. And this was, this was for him very impactful because then he's like, well, it's not my fault. And so that began our journey to trying to understand it and to try to see what, you know, would be the best way to educate John. And, we found it at his school that it was really not, he was really not learning. And to be honest, even the learning specialist at the time said to me, I really cannot help him. I really don't know about dyslexia. I just don't know the best way to teach him. And so there is a school in New York that only, it's called the Windward School, only teaches kids with dyslexia. And we applied and he got in and we made the family decision. You know, I had three older kids at home. It was expensive. We decided, you know, peanut butter and jelly. And I would, (laughs) that also was part of my retirement. We decided I would drive him back and forth. We made a family choice to educate him because we all felt it was so important. And once he got there, he really through their method and through a method that other people use called the Orton-Gillingham method, really learned, it's a multi-sensory approach and really, you know, he learned how to read and write, but he had always expressed himself through art and that stayed with him. So, you know, move it up to college and he went to college, he went, he did very well through school, went to college and he was an art major and then COVID hit. And COVID virtually is very, you know, it's very hard to do art virtually. So he had, you know, assignments, but a lot of free time. And at the same time, I was also reading on FaceTime to my grandchildren. 
And we sort of threw out what would it be like to write a kid's book? And we we started addressing, you know, what do we know best? And there was dyslexia. And we felt it was really important because there are no kids' books that, you know, not really any that we knew of that dealt with either dyslexia or neurodiversity. And John wanted kids who might feel less than, like he did, to say, wow, I see myself in that book. And when other people were baking, we decided to write a kid. I baked also, but we decided to write a kid's book. And originally I was just going to be the author and he was going to be the illustrator. And he thought, you know, as time went on, we were like, no, he really has a point of view. So we co-wrote it and he did all the beautiful, wonderful illustrations. And that's how Robbie was born. I and, love uh, Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Thanks. God, no, that was it. You did such a beautiful summary of describing it as much as you could, because I'm sure there was in between that time so much. My little guy's in kindergarten and we're struggling right now. First off, I like to always preface and and say we've only been in kindergarten since August. And I'm like, whoa, hello, the transition. I don't think we're prepared enough of that transition when they go from preschool to elementary school and how difficult that is. So it's so beautiful, though, that you really advocated for him. And what we're dealing with is my son is a very highly sensitive child. So he does not do well with change. And there are certain things and his teachers out. We came back from winter break. So these past two weeks have been a lot. Um, But there's something for advocating for our children. So it sounds like you're hearing all of this. I mean, that's the first thing I took from that, where you're like, wait a minute, like you're telling me this, but I know that that's not true. Like you're with your child, like this is your child. You're like, it's something else. Then the other beautiful part about that is really understanding and on. I I talked with actually the episode goes live next week with a woman who does what they're called. It's called the learning lab here in South Florida. And she helps kids with dyslexia really teaches that method. The method that you mentioned, she said really should be taught to all children because she said it's such a wonderful way of teaching them how to read. But anyway, so she tutors has, has that. And she was like, you know, for so long kids, with dyslexia or any kind of learning challenges or they're neurodiverse, you know, she was like, a lot of parents feel like, oh, we're going to shame them. She was like, but they feel so much like a weight is lifted off their shoulder. Like they finally have this diagnosis. Like, wait a minute, I'm not, for lack of a better word, you know, unintelligent or stupid as they're saying, or that I'm, you know, that whatever they make you feel less than it's like, no, this is what it is. And I just learn differently. Yes. And and we call it John's superpower. John calls yes. it his superpower. You know, his art is his superpower. Yeah. He learned how to be creative to get around situations. And, you know, from it, he is honestly one of the most empathetic, wonderful, you know, people. And And the art is his superpower. So it all translated into how we were going to write this book. I love it. And it is beautiful. The colors, I read it to my son. So no, I love it. And I loved the idea of, you know, he just takes the taxi takes a different way to work and the whole story behind it of understanding the problem solving, the critical thinking of understanding, because I think that's so important. So yeah, so thank you for for a wonderful summary kind of like of that, because I can only imagine while you're in it, you're like, what do we have to do? But then also understanding as a family, like, Again, we have to advocate him. Let's give him the best that we can because he's not going to thrive 
right. in a school that's teaching the antiquated, the same old, same old, where not every child learns that way. And I think it's really important. I think it's important, you know, to, to block out the noise, but also to, to not just, not just the verbal cues, but the nonverbal cues, mm-hmm. you know, people would say to me, you know, some of his teachers would say, oh, he's acting out. I don't understand. He's, you know, well, why, why is he acting out? Well, it's because you're treating him like less than, and I think it's very important to, to, to take it all in, to listen to your child, to listen to your gut. And if, if you don't think something is right, don't take the, the you know, expert's opinion. Yeah. Really, you need to advocate for your child and, and keep digging until you find what you think is the right or the best answer. And yeah. that was definitely, um, definitely something I learned um, and I had to learn. I talked to, I'll, I'll answer this before I go into my next question. I was talking to a parenting coach who I absolutely love. She's helping me deal with this now transition with my son and to bring me down, right? You know, of, of, cause big feelings, the yelling, the screaming, mommy, I don't want to go to school. So all of that. But one of the things she had said in our conversation was that her son at two years old was a biter. They were going to throw him out of the preschool. And she was like, something's not right. Why is he biting? And it was like, she realized at a particular time. Fast forward, long story short, through her skill set as a parenting coach and the books and the stuff that she was reading, when she finally got to the level of it, her son was biting because during that time it would be music and his he would get so much overload in sensory that he would bite or do something to get in trouble because he knew he got to go into a quiet classroom. Interesting. Yes. So what they did, so once they changed that and during that time, maybe they took him out, the biting stopped, the behavior stopped, because she said, let's get to the core, my child's not going to bite just because kids don't just do that. There's something that maybe he can't communicate it, obviously, he's only two. But when they got to the nitty gritty, it was because it was a it was a sensory overload, like the music, it was just too much. And that was the only way he felt he could go into a quiet corner. So I was like, it's fascinating, because she's like, had I left it alone, I would have thought my child is bad. They, I would have been looking at all these different preschools because no one would accept him. So to, to any parent listening to this, I think it's important, like pause, right? Pause and see, let's see what the underlining problem could be before you make any rash decisions like that. Yes. But okay, so my next question. Okay. So your book is printed. I didn't realize this, but is it printed in a dyslexia friendly font? Yes, it is. Oh, okay. So (laughs) before you go into that and why that was important, I would imagine you wanted to inspire the inclusiveness of that. How do you believe that creating this book and the representation of a neurodiverse character like Robbie can contribute to kind of fostering the understanding and the acceptance among a young reader? Like, tell me how much of a difference that would make, maybe how that would have helped your son had he had a book like that. And then also talk about you know, where the idea was to have the font. I didn't even know that was a thing. So talk about kind of both elements. So we, you know, John always felt that there was no book that represented him. And we decided that that would be an important way to go because not only do to children who have some neurodiverse issue, they're dyslexic, ADHD, whatever, whatever the heading is, whatever the label is, there just really isn't much out there for them. And not only that, but kids who are not neurodiverse, they don't necessarily understand it. 
a lot of parents might be saying, you know, something's up with my child. I don't know what it is. A lot of educators try, but really don't have the education for some of these learning differences. And so we thought this could address the issue, not just for the child who might, you know, see himself or herself or themselves in this book, but maybe for the a bigger community, you know, people who might not understand it. And so we decided that that would be a very important message. And from that, we did a book signing. And this child came up to John. He's like, you know, thank you. I've never read a book like about me. And, you know, I felt great. And then we went back to the school that he went to, the Windward School. He did a reading he treated him like a rock star. It was a, it was so great, you know. Please, can we have your autograph? And you know, what are you going to write about next? And we said that our goal was to write about ADHD. We decided we had such a great reception with dyslexia that we were going to write a whole series under the auspices of the Creative Cab Company, where Robbie works. And the next book would probably be about ADHD because, well, a lot of people have you know, more than one issue difference that they're dealing with. And when John announced this to his, these, these now students at the Windward School, they're like, yay, because probably half of the kids in that room also had ADHD as well as dyslexia. So I think it's really hit a chord with children and with, with families. And so we were really happy with the response. That's beautiful. Yeah, it, it, um, inclusivity matters, representation matters. I would imagine there's so much ADHD, autism, right, Asperger's, like so many different elements that we're now finding out about that are becoming more prevalent. And maybe they always were, but our generation, I mean, I'm 40. So even growing up, even my sister, she's 32. They didn't have any of this. No one knew everything was your ADHD, put you on medication. And that kind of solved the problem. Yes. Yes. Right. And, and nobody, and, and you know, when the learning specialist, I think even if they do know about it or knew about it then, like it turned out my husband's grandmother was dyslexic, but they didn't have a label for it. Nobody really talked about it. But my mother-in-law at the time said, oh, that, that was my mother. And I think we are learning more, but we are learning so much about all the different you know, headings under the neurodiverse kind of community, that it's very hard for teachers and learning specialists to, to really be able to address each, each kind of child that comes their way. There are too many in the classroom. They just, it's very hard. How are you supposed to go to school to learn 10, 15 different ways to communicate with different children? And I think, I think we as a society need to, to be better at that. I think the classrooms need to be smaller. I think we need to, to treat teachers as, you know, the rock stars that they need to be for our children. And there's definitely a gap there, um, which is a shame. Yeah, I agree. And I think but what you're doing, bringing light to the, the conversations, the learning lab that's in South Florida, the school that's in New York, and maybe not everyone has access, but I think having the conversations, the ability through something like a Zoom, right, where people can, I mean, right, the, whatever we can try to kind of reach out there, I think helps because you're right. I think there's more to it. And the same woman I had talked to, Ali, she had mentioned that there's a quote that basically said, 
basically to paraphrase is like if you don't know how to read like that the trouble that comes with it she said a lot of kids probably go through like maybe they could get away up to maybe second grade because some do really well of hiding it some girls because yes compared to boys boys might be a little bit more outlandish with their approach maybe their behavior um but she was like by second or third grade then it starts coming out she was like but then it can cause behavior then they start shutting down and then that goes into middle school high school and if it's never detected then you wonder why you know then even the prisons are filled most of those people don't know how to read and it all stems from maybe I was just gonna say yes a learning disability. And there is a quote, goodness gracious, I'll probably have to use that when I post the episode because it was so true that it might have been even be, been the, the person who started the method that basically said, like reading, not knowing how to read basically leads to prisons, like education, that is the foundation. And I was like, gosh, it makes so much sense. Because if you knew how to read and you you were filled in that way, then you would be able to then go on and, and go. But if you don't have there to someone ev- advocating for you or someone dismisses you, then you're just trying to make it through. You can't get the jobs you need to get. Like then it just becomes a cycle. Yes. And it's a vicious cycle and a negative cycle. And unfortunately, you know, I, I think we just need to do better. And it's very hard to do better when we don't, you know, give the teachers what they need and, yes. you know, over the classrooms are just way too big. So I think it's a problem all the way around. It is, but we're, we're here, right? We're trying to do the little part that we can hear. (laughs) Okay. Back to the book. So Robbie, so I mentioned that I loved this story. He can't read the street signs. He's trying to overcome some challenges. Share more about what was the mindset of why you chose that to be, I guess, the premise of the story and how Robbie used the creative solutions, you know, why was that important to like kind of overcome the obstacle and to show that in the story? So we thought, you know, how could we show what kind of character might have a problem? So, well, gosh, a car, a taxi, if they can't figure out where to go, if they can't read the street signs, how would they figure it out if the routes they, you know, many kids sort of go around their their, their difference and find a creative way. So for Robbie, he would memorize his route, but then all of a sudden one day he's like, Oh, you know, they changed my route. Now what am I going to do? I can't read the street signs. How am I going to get out of my pickle creatively? And so for Robbie, he needed to get to the airport. And so he looked in the sky and he said, Oh, well, if I follow, if I figure out, if I watch where the planes go, that's how I can get there. Sure enough, that's what he did. And, you know, also, you know, cars and people, people with dyslexia also might have issues figuring out their left and their right. So we just thought this would be a great way for this book and and maybe books to come on explaining some of the issues and differences that somebody with dyslexia might have. So that's how we came up with a cab. I love that. And I think the creative problem solving to overcome that obstacle is so important because then even a child who might not be neurodiverse can still see, well, they figured it out. Everything is figure outable, whether you, maybe you, you, you read differently or your brain thinks differently, everything is figure outable. So I love that because I think that's such important to skip important skill that we all should have is that resilience that he didn't just give up. He didn't just, you know, and he was like, all right, well, 
life does happen that way. I might have memorized this, but now something has shifted. How can I overcome this? What can I do? So I loved that part of the story. And I actually talked to my son about that through it, you know, of, of, of kind of having those conversations with it. Yes. So yeah, I, you know, I, we hope that it hit home with, with other people too, that, that they realize, you know, that you always see those mugs and then, you know, keep calm and carry on. I, I hope that I hope that is how people will take this. So I love it. So while we wind down here, I wanted I know you mentioned kind of what's next and the ADHD and I love that. So whenever that comes out and you want to be a guest, definitely talk about that. Any other final thoughts? I know we talked about advocating. If you could give any tips, I know you mentioned like really listening, but if there's a mom that's in it, right? She's she's struggling and she does have a neurodiverse child, even in the home, how to talk to the family about it, you know, like your own family unit, what are some tips that you would talk to that mom that might be in it? And not just with schooling, but just in general. I definitely think it's very important to arm yourself with as much education as you can. I know now that there are Facebook groups and different platforms, there are ways to communicate with other people, which I didn't have back in the day, John's 24. And I think if you can find, you know, your people, whatever that means, I think that's really helpful. I think ask questions, maybe your pediatrician, someone in your community, there's, you know, different groups. If you can find your, you know, your platform, people you can talk to, I think it's very helpful so you don't feel alone. And I think then also you're, you have, you start getting the information you need to advocate best for your child. Love that. Thank you, Lynn. How can people connect with you? How can they purchase the book? Share all the things. I'll put in the show notes, but share with my listeners how they can connect and how they can get the book. Oh, you're so thank you. So you can buy the book on Amazon. If you go into a bookstore, you can ask them to buy it on bookshop.org. We are on social media. We have a website and we are on social media as the Creative Cab Company or creativecabcompany.com. DM us, go to the website, send us um, an email, a message. We'd really love to hear from you, from anybody. And, you know, we, we'd love to be more of a conversation. So I love it. Thank you so much, Lynn, for coming on, for writing this great book. I told you I was going to donate the copies that you send to an organization that works with neurodiverse children and families. So thank you so much. And yeah, good luck with the rest of the series and continued thank blessings you. for love and light. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this impactful episode of the Motherhood Village podcast. Subscribe to my show so you'll never miss a future episode. You may also rate and review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with someone that can use it as part of their Motherhood Village. Remember, your village can take up many forms and you do not have to do it alone. Connect with me at themotherhoodvillage.com. Blessings to you for love and light.